on the dock, and uh, I just want to expand on that just a little bit, just to give you my biblical impressions of heaven, and uh, also quote some good theologians, some guys I trust here. We talked about stewardship. Money and giving leads to stewardship. But not only in money, but in your talents, your aptitudes, and your resources. And you will not honor God in these things if you're not heavenly minded. You know, I said to you last time I was here that this might be the most important sermon regarding a healthy church. We must be heavenly minded. We must be heavenly minded. We can't really fulfill the commission that God has given to us. We've talked about eternal reward that God has promised to His faithful children. There will be no reward for those who are not heavenly-minded. What do I mean by heavenly-minded? We think about it. We talk about it. We long for it. We point at it. We prepare for it. We always take it into account. It's part of our calculus. As we live our lives during the week, it's part of our calculus. How does this affect my stewardship? How does this affect my moment before Jesus Christ at the Bama seat? Is this, is this valuable or is this not valuable? In an eternal sense. That's what it means to be heavenly minded. We're always looking at our ultimate home. This is not home for us. All of us who are born again, we understand this is not home. In fact, it makes us very uncomfortable most of the time. This is not home. We're on our way to home, right? This is the picture the Bible presents about heaven. We've talked, last time I was here, about finishing well. The conference Karen and I went to was entitled Finishing Well, right? Don't you want to finish well? You know, that should be your highest goal, whether you're 15 or, you know, really, really old like Joe. It doesn't matter. This should be... This should be your goal. Finish well. And hear that well done. Good and faithful servant. I shared that text with you two weeks ago. You know, uh, that James text. This, we're vapors. It won't be very long. There's that promise there. You, you don't have to put up with this junk very much longer. And then we'll be home. We'll be home with God I shared with you two weeks ago also Jonathan Edwards' great quote, We must labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world. I fear that some of us may not have a deep sense of just how vain all of this is, right? Then he goes on to say, And we must labor to be much acquainted with heaven. So this is why I'm preaching on heaven, one reason. I, I read a, a piece where the guy was asserting that if you're over... If you're under 50 years old, you've probably never heard a sermon on heaven. Now, I don't know, I don't know if Brad's preached on it before in, in the particular. He has. So you have. It's really important that we know where we're going. You know? How can you run the race if you don't have a, a good impression, a good visual of the finish line? Now, two weeks ago I shared with you one of my favorite books that Help, has helped me develop my theology of heaven. Obviously, the Bible's first. Piper's book, God's Passion for His Glory, has been helpful just in 
looking at the sheer beauty and glory and magnificence of God. It's a great book. And then this one, Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Now, it's 533 pages. You've got to want it. But it's, you know, Alcorn, I don't believe he's right about everything. Um, there's some things in here I don't like. I don't like the guy who endorsed the book on the front, so ignore that, Rick Warren. Uh, we won't go any further there. But there's a lot in here that will stimulate your biblically informed imagination to th- begin to think hard thoughts about your home. Don't call yourself a Christian if you're not thinking about your home. Because I fear that you're not. It's an important discipline. That we know where we're going. And we're jacked up about it. We're fired up about it. Oh, I'm going to lose my job if I stand on principle? So what? I'm going to be with Christ soon. In just a very little while, I'm a vapor. So what? Let the world do their worst. We're going home with God. Listen, beloved, all I'm saying, it's important. It's important to have a well-developed, biblically informed and sanctified view of what is in store for us. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, I read a a book. It's a bit dodgy. You know, there were a couple of good quotes in there. I'm not going to tell you the name of the book because I don't want you to read it. There's some dodgy stuff in there. The, the, uh, The author of the book is a little dodgy, too. I found that subsequent. But I, I read a line in that book that, that, that I loved and I never forgot. Um, I think it informs heaven. The line was this. There is in the heart of every human being a deep longing. Some of you could finish this sentence. At, at least some of you who have some years, you could finish this sentence. There's a deep longing for intimacy, beauty, and adventure. I want you to think about that. It's Jesus Christ. Intimacy, beauty, and adventure. It's God forever, right? You know, I would add the, I would add the words genuine, authentic, enduring intimacy, beauty, and adventure. I shared with uh, the, the Bible study group one Sunday evening some weeks ago, maybe months now, um, This quote by Henry Scrugel, a raging and inextinguishable, I got it, inextinguishable desire in every one of us. And you know this is true, those of you who've lived very long. There's there's always, you know, as Piper says, your heart is a desire factory. You all, you know, if you get what you desire, it's not enough. You need something else. And of course, God will satisfy the uh, desire of every one of his children. Hence the title of the sermon, Inextinguishable Desire and Satisfaction that we will find in heaven. I know you know what these words mean, but intimacy, to know and be known completely. Perfect love and communication, to be desired and pursued. Perfect oneness, tenderness, kindness, and mutual delight. Beauty. To see the wonder of it, to be in awe of it, to drink it in, to savor it. As C.S. Lewis says, to enter into it, to become part of it, to be one with it. These are echoes of heaven. Adventure. To fully engage our capacities, abilities, talents in a challenging, exciting, and worthy endeavor. 
to give ourselves to and spend ourselves in a noble venture experiencing ultimate exhilaration. Intimacy, beauty, and adventure. It's one way I can talk about heaven. It's one way I can talk about the new, the new heaven and the new earth, right? Because God is all of these things for us. There's a, there is an intimacy with, with Yahweh. Go read John 17. It will blow your mind. There's an intimacy there. Of course, there's beauty there. And there will be adventure there. There will be adventure that will fill your soul to the point of bursting. One theologian says, you know, this sounds like fairy tale stuff. He went on to say, the world of the gospel contains all the elements of the world of fairy tale, with one notable exception. The gospel is true. Not only did it happen once upon a time, but it is happening still, and it will happen for countless eternities. <laughs> Where do you think the fairy tales came from? A, they are a poor echo of God's promise to His children. Now, as older people, those of us who are a little older, have a few years, we know, and I, I think I shared this with you before, we know there's nothing on the planet that satisfies us fully. There are many pleasures, many joys, many delights. But there's nothing on the planet that satisfies us fully. Only God can do that. You know what Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.11? God has set what? Eternity in our hearts. It's in there. And you can't fill it up with the world. You can't, no matter how hard you try. God has wired us with infinite appetites for intimacy, beauty, and adventure. He's the only answer. So we do have a raging, eternal, infinite desire that is inextinguishable. It will never go out, but God will fill us up with Himself. Many try to suppress and domesticate these desires on a human level. It's called conformity. Others try to satisfy them in some overly indulgent, sensual way, which always leads to gross sin. But we are made for Christ. We have been redeemed for Christ. Infinite intimacy, beauty, and adventure. For a billion eternities. God says this in a tantalizing way. Isaiah 65, 1. God says, I, I've, I love this. I love, these, I love this verse. God says, I permitted myself to be sought by those who didn't ask for me. I know when I was converted, I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't looking for God at all. I didn't ask for God. He continues, I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I wasn't seeking him, really. And God said, here I am, here I am. So God permits his people who, who did not ask for him and did not seek him, he permits them to find him. Beloved, God put us in paradise. We chose rebellion, sin, death, and hell. We weren't really looking for God. Where was Adam and Eve when he came 
in the garden. They were hiding. It's just what you and I were doing. Some of us hide in church. It's, it's all a pretense, right? We hide in church. And there God is. He's in that manger. He's on that cross. And He's doing a shocking thing. In a stunning and self-sacrificial way, He's taking us back to Eden. One way we could say it. I shared this quote with you two weeks ago, C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I do not belong here. G.K. Chesterton was a 20th century Christian apologist. He said it like this. I was told again and again that I was in the right place, the here and now. And I still felt depressed, even in my acquiescence to the, the statement of fact. But when I heard I was in the wrong place, my soul sang for joy. I'm not home. I'm a pilgrim. I'm an alien. I'm an exile. I'm passing through. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? We're passing through. I think that is exceptionally good news. D.L. Moody said, one day you will read that I am dead. Don't you believe it? I will be more alive at that moment than I have ever been. The day you die will be your best day. If you're a Christian, if you're born again, if you know Christ, if you love Christ, if you've placed your faith in Christ, um, the day you die will be your best. will be the best thus far, and every day beyond that, if we can use that term in relation to eternity, will be far better. So we're going back to paradise. We're going to be with God. God-sized intimacy. God-sized beauty. God-sized adventure forever and ever and ever. So, I may have posed this question to you last time. Can we really ever begin to imagine the new heaven and the new earth? Well, biblically, yes and no. There are many scriptural hints as to what God has prepared for us. But it defies verse-by-verse verse exposition. And the reason I wanted to read that psalm, Psalm 36, that one line there, halfway through verse 8, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights, right? And with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. It's just one small picture of heaven from the Scriptures. Certainly there'll be countless surprises in the new heaven and new earth, gasp-inducing, heart-exploding, soul-expanding ex soul surprises that we would have never begun to imagine. But this is also true. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God is showing us glimpses of heaven. You just have to know how to see them. Every beautiful, intimate, adventurous moment in the Bible is a dim foreshadowing of the new heaven and new earth. Every time God disclosed Himself in Scripture, it, it was a foretaste of heaven, right? As He informally walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. As He repeatedly and intimately revealed Himself to Abraham. As He disclosed His holiness to Moses at the burning bush as He revealed His glory at the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John. 
God will forever be revealing Himself over and over and over to His children, and we never get to the end of God. Inextinguishable desire, inextinguishable glory, right? And beauty and intimacy <laughs> and adventure in the new heaven and new earth. Every time God put His omnipotent power on display in the Scripture, it's a small preview of the glory of God that we will see and taste and touch and, and behold. God spoke two trillion galaxy, two trillion galaxy cosmos into existence. You guys remember Job 38. The angels really liked it. Job 38, 7. All the angels of God shouted for joy. They were filled with joy as he just spoke. Speaks a cosmos into existence. You can only imagine what the joy will be for us for countless eternities. Every time God drew near one of His children, we saw His tenderness. You remember how gently He came to Elijah. You remember how Jesus selflessly shared Himself with His disciples. Every time God blew His people away with unspeakable joy, it's a foretaste of heaven. We remember the utter joy of the Exodus Jews at the Red Sea. We remember Mary Magdalene's joy at the resurrection. Every time God kept a promise in the Bible, it's a preview of the new heaven and new earth because He's going to keep every promise to you. Every one. Every promise. He will keep to his children. My point is this. In one sense, the new heaven and new earth is all over the pages of Scripture. In every intimate moment between God and his people, in every breathtaking display of God's power and beauty, and in every outrageous adventure God took his people through. It's just, it's just a, a shadowy picture of what awaits us. What awaits us as we graduate from this life into the next? I think I touched on this um, two weeks ago. What happens to the born-again soul when he dies? Now, there's a lot of ignorance about this, a lot of misconception about this. Uh, although the Bible is very clear for the Christian, um, we will be with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5, 8. To be absent from the body is to be home with the Lord. When the Christian dies, his spirit goes to be with the Lord. He goes to what is the present heaven. Is this the final state for the Christian? No. It is not the final state. We will not be disembodied spirits in heaven. That's not our ultimate destination. The Bible is very clear. The heaven we go to when we die is temporary. The new heaven and new earth is our ultimate destination. And I've been reading some about it this week, and theologians use all different kinds of words to talk about the new heaven and new earth. They talk about the reconciled earth, the redeemed earth, the restored earth, the recovered earth, the renewed earth, the, resurrection, the resurrected earth. There's a lot of terms that theologians use to talk about this. The sad thing is that many Christians, again, are, bib are not biblically literate, 
They've not read their Bibles. They've not been well taught. And of course, that's on you. It's always on you. <laughs> you're, supposed to, you're supposed to be a student of the, of the Word. If you know Jesus Christ, you're, you're called to be a student of the Word. You can't live the Word if you don't know the Word. But there is this distinction. It's important for you to understand that the present heaven is temporary. You and I are headed for the new heaven and new earth, ultimately. It's important that we understand that and make that distinction. Alcorn says this, Randy Alcorn, Most views of heaven are anti-incarnational. They fail to grasp that heaven will be God dwelling with us, a resurrected physical people on the resurrected physical earth. As Jesus is God incarnate, so the new earth will be heaven incarnate. If the eternal heaven will be the new earth, doesn't that suggest that the current earth must be bursting with clues about what heaven will be like? Well, yes, of course. This present earth, although fallen and corrupted by our sin, gives us many clues. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says the present earth is like the root as compared to the flower. The flower is the new heaven and new earth. He goes on to say that, that um, this earth is like, is like uh, pardon me, the new heaven and new earth is like a diamond as compared to coal. I, I, like those image, I like that imagery. But we do have clues. We do have clues. There's, as you know, there is stunning beauty, symmetry, power, genius on display in this, in this life. And a host of Pleasures that fill the senses. These are echoes of the new heaven and new earth. Who doesn't love a beautiful sunset? Who doesn't love huge waves on the beach? Who doesn't love a majestic mountain range? Who doesn't love a starlit night? Who doesn't love crickets in the evening? Who doesn't love to wake up to the birds singing? I mean, there are echoes everywhere. There are echoes everywhere with respect to the new heaven and new earth. God is taking us back to Eden, but it's a better Eden. It's a resurrected Eden. And we will be dwelling with a resurrected Christ. So I'm going to do something. I hope it communicates. If you want my notes, you're always welcome to them. I'll just email them to you. In the book entitled Heaven, Alcorn charts and parallels the continuity between the, the original Garden of Eden and the new earth. Okay, so just... If you want my notes, I'll send them to you. Eden, original mankind. The new earth, resurrected mankind. Eden, original earth. New earth, the resurrected earth. Eden, innocent man reigns. New earth, redeemed man reigns. Eden, God visits Eden. New earth, God lives with man in the new heaven and new earth. Eden, the tree and river of life. The new earth, tree and river of life in the new Jerusalem. Eden, no sin or death. In the new earth, sin and death forever vanquished. Eden, God's glory is seen. And I love this one. In the new earth, God's glory is fully communicated. Over a billion eternities. We will taste it. You know, C.S. Lewis talks about being enveloped in it. And I, don't, I always have to be careful here, right? I think it's, it's prudent to be careful. But God is communicating glory to His redeemed. We don't just see it. It's bigger than that. 
It's bigger than that. He's communicating it. It's big. In Eden, unhindered worship. In the new earth, unhindered worship. In Eden, mankind tends animals. In the new earth, harmony between man and animals. Eden, joy and satisfaction in labor. The new earth, joy and satisfaction in labor. Eden, abundant, delicious food. The new earth, abundant, delicious food. Eden, man able to sin. New earth, man empowered to never sin again. Eden, naked in innocence. The new earth, clothed in righteousness. Eden, beginning of human culture. New earth, purification and expansion of human culture. Eden, mankind grows, learns, and creates. New earth, mankind grows, learns, and creates. You know, I think some people have this idea that the new earth will be static. It will be dynamic. And it will be thrilling. I had had the opportunity to meet with a Messianic Jew uh, this week. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was so cool. You know, we talked a little eschatology and... and, and uh, I said, brother, his name is Baruch Moaz. He's from Israel. And when I departed, I said, brother, I know I won't see you again. I'll see you on the other side. He said, that's, that's good, Jim. I'll see you there. But I'm not. He said, I'm going to be wholly taken up with the beauty of Christ. I might have some time for you. I don't know. But this is how he was. Everything, and he preached, everything was about the beauty of Christ. Beloved, we got to get there. Right? I could tell he's 80 years old. He had one foot over. There was no question this guy had one foot over. Right? This uh, analogy I've been using for you. As I shared two weeks ago, R.C. Ryle, theologian, famous theologian, says, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. Alcorn adds, I pity the man who never thinks accurately about heaven. If we think accurately about the new heaven and new earth, we will stop loving this world. Now, I don't know how much of your, your heart you're still giving to this world. I don't know. I don't know. God knows, and you know. But if you become radically heavenly-minded, that will become much less of a problem, right? If you start to see yourself as you truly are, you're passing through. You're passing through. As one theologian says, as we start to accurately think about God, our hearts will be drawn there. Uh, Alcorn um, quotes Francis Schaeffer, famous Swiss theologian in the last century. He said, the Christian is, is, a, is a free man. We're free to have imagination that should fly beyond the stars. Our imagination doesn't fly away from truth. It flies upon truth. And this is his point with regard to the new heaven and new earth. A biblically informed, sanctified imagination to consider all that God may have prepared for us. Uh, it would be interesting to find out, before I started preaching on heaven, how many of you, when was the last time you had actually thought about it? When was the last time you'd gotten jacked up about it? When was the last time it changed a major decision in your life? This is what I'm talking about. Being heavenly minded. Always thinking first of our ultimate home. Certainly not this one. I said this to you last time, and I want to say it again. Um, it helps free up my imagination 
It's part of what Alcorn's book did. Again, he's not right about everything, I don't believe. But he quotes a lot of solid guys, and he's always going back to Scripture. But who remembers the answer to the question I posed a few weeks ago? Is all we'll do in heaven is worship Jesus? Does anybody remember the answer to that question? Yes! Yes! That's all we will do in many different kinds of ways. We will never want unforgettable, heart-exploding worship celebrations to stop. And we will never be able to stop worshiping Jesus as we rule and reign and work and serve and explore and discover and learn and design and create and investigate and build and compose and teach and travel and relate and meet and talk with some of our heroes from Scripture and history to love, to touch, to eat, to hike, to dance, to play, to ride horses on the beach. I've never done that, but I always thought that'd be really cool. So I'm going to do that when I get there. And 10,000 other things you've always wanted to do. We talked about it last week. In heaven, everything is allowed. Why is everything allowed? Because you will not have a sinful thought in your mind. And everything you think you might want to try, it's available to you. Sin is as distasteful to you as it is to God Himself. So your thoughts are not sullied by sin and manipulation and self-interest. It's a way to worship God. I'm going to ride horses on the beach and I'm going to worship God. He made horses. And He made a beach. And I've got enough balance to stay on this thing. Right? Alcorn drives this point home. <laughs> he says you've never been hugged till you've been hugged in heaven. I believe that's right. Listen, if you've got some dim, otherworldly, shadowy, ghostly image of heaven, you, you're, you don't have a biblical view. You don't have a biblical view. We need to use our sanctified imagination. Alcorn says this, we're in the family business. God is bringing his children into the family business. We will rule and reign his redeemed creation under the sovereign kingship of Jesus. I don't know, that sounds pretty good to me. Matthew 25, 34, Jesus says, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, take your inheritance, the the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. You guys know Luke 12, 32. Jesus said, your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom of God. Every good thing, every good and acceptable pleasure is yours. Everything is allowed in the new heaven and the new earth. Without doubt, the modern church has utterly underestimated the gravity of sin and its consequence. Um, this far-reaching scope of God's redemption we know that, again, biblically we know that our cosmos has been subjected to corruption because of our sin. The, the, the asteroid on the far side of the galaxy is corrupted somehow because you and I rebelled. And God subjected the whole creation to futility and corruption. 
all this beauty and magnificence we see is in fact marred by our own rebellion. But I want to I point this out to you. Have you ever noticed that the high point in the book of Romans, chapter 8 and 9, God's talking about the redemption of creation. He's not just talking about you and I. He's talking about bringing Eden back, right? Whatever term you want to use, whatever theological term you want to use, I don't want to get into the minutiae here about what term I'm using. Romans 8, 19 and 20, listen. God starts talking about creation's redemption. For the anxious longing of the creation <laughs> waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. The creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. God is not only redeeming a people for Himself, He's taking us back, in one sense, to Eden. John Piper says, God is not going to get rid of matter. Matter matters. It matters to God. God likes matter. He made it. And His Son came as a human being. God's going to recreate the physical cosmos and will physically exercise dominion over it under, or we will, under His rule. I said it to you last time. And I, I know you guys are too mature. You don't, when you think of heaven, you don't, you don't think of harps and clouds. You don't think of an eternal church service. Shame on us if we do. We will be employing our unique gifts, abilities, and talents in the service of King Jesus as we love Him and serve Him and worship Him forever and ever. I've shared my Hubble telescope uh, illustration with some of you, and you know I get kind of excited about it. Um, you know, Hubble, which now has been eclipsed by the Webb telescope, but I don't have a Webb telescope um, illustration yet. But Hubble... Um, focused on the darkest and emptiest part of the sky, focusing on a region the size of a grain of sand if you hold it at arm's length. So that's, the, that's how large the sky was that they were looking at. And this was 10 to 15 billion light years into space, a light year being 6 trillion miles. And they found layers of layers upon layers upon layers upon layers of galaxies. That's the darkest part of the sky. What is God saying to us? What is God saying to us when we see these marvels? I'm infinite. You don't get to the end of me. And oh yeah, it's all yours. The kingdom is yours. Oh, and you're interested in the trifles of the world? Really? I don't think you've met God yet. If something here still can't, catches your fancy and consumes your attention. Beloved, every time you come in here, everything's at stake forever. And I, I, I almost cannot fail to remind you of that. I'm preaching on heaven. But you should be so highly motivated, you know, 
You've caught a glimpse in your spirit of Jesus Christ. That should be motivation enough. But when you start to take into account all we can understand biblically about heaven, right? (laughs) How can we let the world get into our hearts and into our minds and into our souls? How is it possible to be called the children of God and love the world? I submit to you that it's not possible. Now, there's such a thing as being backslidden, of course. So, if, you, if you're not heavenly, if you're sitting here this morning, you're not heavenly minded, and you're wholly consumed with something in the world, I just, in love, I say, repent. <laughs> repent. Stop doing that. Back to the Hubble telescope. Infinite intimacy will be we will have with Jesus Christ. Infinite beauty we will behold in Jesus Christ. Infinite adventure we will experience in Jesus Christ. An eternal adventure. <laughs> I just really like the sound of it. I'm I'm probably like Baruch Moaz. I mean, I know I know it's gonna be hard to even glance away from the glory and beauty of Christ, right? But we're going to have work to do too. And that work is an expression of my love and and worship to Him. Right? Everything in the new heaven and new earth flows back to Him. Well, it's almost true here too, right? In the sense that even when God judges the rebel, even when God judges, all the glory flows back to Him. He is the perfect judge. For the damned... And he's the perfect lover, shall we say, groom for the bride. Everything flows back to him. Even in this fallen world. Alcorn provides a great comparison in his book between the assumptions about heaven and what the Bible says about the new heaven and new earth. Assumption that, the, that this that will be on a non-earth. Biblical inferences. It is the new earth. Assumption. It's unfamiliar and otherworldly. Biblical inferences. It's familiar and earthly. Assumptions. Disembodied spirits. Biblical inferences. Resurrected body. Assumptions. Foreign and alien environment. Uh, biblical statements and inferences. We will be in our true physical home for the first time. Assumptions, leaving favorite things. Biblical inferences, retaining favorite things and new favorite things, plus new favorite things. Assumptions, it's static and boring. Uh, Biblical statements, it's dynamic and thrilling. Assumptions, there's a loss of desire. (laughs) Biblical uh, inferences, there's raging, limitless, and satisfied desire, inextinguishable. Beloved, we think way too small about this and way too infrequently about this you know i challenge you for the next 365 days you know put it on your your calendar you think about heaven and you begin to develop your theology and the world will lose its allure you know i'm sure you've heard the saying that every person outlives their desires but not the christian god 
is the focus of our desire. God is taking us back to paradise. God will be the main attraction, but there will be limitless and countless derivative joys, earthly, physical, familiar. Just why are flowers beautiful? Because God is beautiful. Why are sunsets stunning? Because God is stunning. Why are puppies delightful? Because God is delightful. Why is recreation fun? Because God is fun. Why are work and accomplishments fulfilling and rewarding? Because God is. God is. And we're in on the family business. God is giving it to us. Shame on you. And I, hey, I, I know I'm marginal at best. But I've said a few things, and I've quoted a few scriptures. Shame on you if you walk out this door and you don't even know what I preached about tomorrow. I mean, that's always true, right? That's always true. But I'm encouraging you to develop a discipline to start looking at your home. A discipline to, to start thinking about all the, the beauty that awaits you forever. I want to really encourage you. We have to be heavenly minded or we have no hope of being a healthy church. We'll just be like every other church going through the motions. It's astonishing how many professed Christians are ignorant of 1 Corinthians 6, 2, and 3. Do you not know that we will judge the world? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Revelation 5. God has made us kings and priests to God. We shall reign on the earth. The reason I think so many professed Christians are not excited about that, they've never put any time into thinking about it and praying about it and, and pondering it and trying to tease out what Scripture is saying to us about what awaits us. In closing, I want to simply remind you that Christians are the ultimate hedonists. This is John Piper's famous term, phrase. Piper calls us Christian hedonists. What's a hedonist? Someone who lives for pleasure. The Christian is the ultimate hedonist. We live for pleasure. Our pleasure is Jesus Christ. Right? And we can't stoop. We can't stoop to any lesser pleasure. He is our consummate pleasure. That pleasure guides our thinking and our living and our decision making. Am I going to go to church this morning? Well, yes! Jesus Christ is my pleasure and I want to sing. I want to sing to Him. I want to bring Him an offering. I want to hear what, what the preacher says, whether he's marginal or not, about the glory of Christ. I want to know what the, the I know what I want to know what my inheritance is. I want to know this stuff. So I don't act like a fool Monday through Saturday. Which I'm just going to tell you I'm prone to do if I'm not disciplined.
Karen, when she teaches your kids about the love of God, she teaches them this. Biblical love is the overflow of joy that God has in Himself, spilling out onto unworthy people to draw them into the greatest experience in the world, namely knowing, tasting, enjoying, praising, being swept up into the glory of God. If God is the greatest of all beings from which flows infinite joy, beauty, and adventure, what is, what is the most loving thing He can give us? Oh, temporal health, wealth, and prosperity? It's blasphemy. blasphemy. You go tell your name it and claim it, friend. It's blasphemy. No true lover of Christ can set his sights so low. The most loving thing God can give is himself, and that's exactly what he's done. It is the sacred romance. It is for a billion eternities, and it never stops getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Our joy, happiness, fulfillment, gladness, delights, uh, serenity, pleasure, success, gratification, contentment, exhilaration, exuberance, and ecstasy will know no bounds. And I'm going to read this again to you. I think I read part of it last time. This is a sort of a... Um, a uh, conjoined quote from Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, famous theologian, and John Piper. Eternity is not static. There will be an ever-increasing union and conformity through all eternity between the redeemed and God, John 17. While the creator and creature are forever distinct, we always want to make that distinction, there will be an escalating and intensifying nearness and oneness with God moving upwards with a given velocity throughout all eternity. I mean, that's enough for me right there, okay? I'm ready to go, right? I've got a heart condition. I mean, I could fall over dead right now. But I've still got some life insurance, so that'd be good. You, you know, you got to get one foot over because it's going to be so good. You know, I told you this before, but I used to tell people, they say, oh, are you ready to go? And I'd say, oh, I want to preach one more time. And I figured out that's an insult. It's an insult to God to say I want to preach one more time when I could actually be in his presence. It is an insult. Yeah, it sounds good. It's an insult. One more Edwards Piper quote. Since God is infinite, the creature cannot fathom the totality of his greatness or comprehend the infinite beauty or delight in all that he is. Rather, it will take an eternity for us to know and enjoy all that God is. There will never be a time when there is no more glory for the redeemed to discover and understand. God is getting us ready for God-sized God intimacy, God-sized beauty, and God-sized adventure in the new heaven and new earth. I'm going to turn over, and you can turn with me if you like, over to... Revelation 21, and I'm done. Revelation 21. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Revelation 21. I'm going to pick up here at the end of verse 9. The angel said, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the, rot, the wife of the Lamb. This is the New Jerusalem. And he carried me away, verse 10. 
in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. Verse 11. Having the glory of God, her brilliance, was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. And I'm going to jump over the next... Um, what, 12 verses? He's describing the new Jerusalem. I'm going to jump over to verse 22. You can read the other for yourself. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city was, has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Verse 24. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its streets and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. Remember what God told Moses? You don't get to see my face. Nobody sees my face. You're my friend, but you can't see my face and live. Verse 4, Revelation 22. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. There shall no longer be any night. They shall not have need of, of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God shall illumine them. They shall reign forever and ever. Beloved, shame on you, shame on me. If I don't have a well-developed theology of the new heaven and new earth and I don't eagerly long to go there. We've got something wrong with our Christianity. If we're not ready and eager to go there, you know, he's, he, he has given us just enough to whet our appetites. So I challenge you, as a fellow believer, work on it. Work on it. Let your sanctified imagination fly above the stars. As Francis Schaeffer said. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, I think some of us here, we need to repent. <clears throat> 